Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. The fact that inequality has been rising in many countries, but especially in the United States, for many of the years between the 1970s and today is not news, or shouldn't be. It has been a hot topic of conversation for decades, and it is an issue that I'll be examining from many angles in my book project, A Good History of Shit Jobs. Answers to the question, what has caused rising inequality, are disputed. But one set of answers has been put forward by the French economist Thomas Piketty. His book, Capital in the 21st Century, published in English in 2014, became something of a bestseller, though it was without a doubt a book more often purchased and discussed than actually read. In that book, Piketty argues that one driver of inequality is that over the long term, and by long term I mean more than 200 years of history, there are higher returns on capital than labor. That is, you make more money from money than you do from working a job. Wealth begets wealth, which leads to a small economically dominant class. In his 2019 follow-up book, Capital and Ideology, Piketty argues that over the course of history, societies have had varying ideological justifications for inequality. That is, Unequal societies develop stories that make their inequities seem natural, even inevitable. Now, in both books, Piketty makes historical arguments, though he is an economist, not a historian. But do his historical arguments actually hold up? Are they accurate? Unlike some folks, I think this is a very important question, because moral action requires understanding how the world is, And as we try to point at something like moral truth, and my God, we could talk for days about what that might mean, we must come to see the world as it is to the best of our ability, which is not to suggest that we can ever arrive at a single shared picture of reality. That would be naive. But our moral and political lives have nothing to fear from the truth, or at least that's what I'd argue. And it's for this reason that I was so excited to see that two of my historian friends, Jonathan Coopersmith and Andrew Popp, pulled together a special issue of the journal History Compass on Piketty's book, Capital and Ideology. The special issue brings together essays on the book by historians who work on the history of business and capitalism. They interrogate Piketty's historical claims, but do so in a sympathetic manner. None of them are completely opposed to Piketty's project. Indeed, they all find it valuable. Jonathan Coopersmith is a historian of technology and a retired professor of history from Texas A&M. Earlier in his career, he wrote about the electricity industry in Russia and the Soviet Union, and later he wrote the fun book, Faxed, The Rise and Fall of the Fax Machine. Andrew Popp is a professor of history at Copenhagen Business School and editor-in-chief of Enterprise and Society, a journal of business history put out by the Business History Conference. 
Andy is also doing some really cutting edge work on the history of capitalism and the emotions, including one of the most original essays I have read in ages, and I can't wait to see it published eventually. In this conversation with Cooper Smith and Pop, I talked to them about why they thought it worthwhile to bring the attention of historians to bear on Piketty's historical arguments and what they learned in the process. I had a lot of fun talking to them, as you'll see, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Get excited! Andy and Jonathan, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you very much for inviting us to be on. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, and I suppose we should have settled uh, beforehand whether we're going to call him Piketty or Piketty. Is Piketty more proper? Do you guys know the pronunciation? I don't know. I always say Piketty, but it's probably wrong. <laughs> me uh, too. But, okay. but, but it's one of those words that you... You see written down much more than you hear yeah. spoken. That's right. Although I have met him and seen him speak, but I still don't know how it's... Yeah. Don't know how it's said. Yeah, we could always just say the sociologist and leave it at that. <laughs> Maybe we should start off for listeners who haven't read uh, Piketty's book, Capital and Ideology, spelling out, uh, you know, in a, in a kind of bare framework, like what his argument is. And why you thought it would be good to have historians respond uh, to that book. Andy, do you want to give the first shot? Yeah, okay. Uh, well, it should really be Jonathan, because I actually wasn't in on this project from the word go. I joined slightly later, but uh, I, I can have um, the first shot. So uh, Piketty's argument um, in like two sentences for a thousand page plus book is that all societies have what he calls an inequality regime which uh, justifies and maintains a particular level um, of inequality in that society. These regimes are overwhelmingly ideological but also institutional and that if we look at uh, history um, we can see a pattern of kind of evolutionary stages through which societies tended to move in early modern and modern history in terms of their progression through a series of inequality regimes. So that's the argument in a nutshell. And and Piketty is someone who's deeply concerned about the corrosive political and social and economic effects of inequality, uh, which he sees as worsening and increasing. Um, and uh, he wants to find a kind of corrective uh, participatory politics to deal with that. And I think we wanted to engage with it as historians because this is really a history book. Mm. Because it's an, an economist, uh, but uh, reviewing the introduction we wrote, Jonathan and I wrote before joining you, um, Something we really emphasise is that this is a this is a book of historical scholarship. He's being he's historically minded in this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, this isn't just a matter of longitudinal data of which there's 
a very large amount, but also uh, of of uh, an essentially historical analytical framework. And he believes vitally that um, a proper historical understanding of where we are today can help us uh, imagine a better future. So, in essence, he he deserves our engagement as as historians and not just as some kind of uh, interloper from economics who's going to come in and say you're doing this all wrong uh, it's just mm-hmm. a serious engagement with history so jonathan did i say too much uh no i think you 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 said it far more eloquently and <laughs> comprehensively than i would have um and he also comes to us uh having sold with his uh, pre- previous book over, uh, I think it was over one or two million million copies. So when we have someone who's a bestseller and, and saying, I'm taking history seriously, we think that we as historians have an obligation to take him ser- seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, and which which means not just, oh, wow, any an economist is is saying we uh, matter, but let's look let's look at what he's let's look at what what he's doing and where can we go together from from here, hmm. um, both in terms of how can we improve what he's doing and how and maybe he's given us a couple of kicks in the pants. Um, <laughs> you know, I. I now, again, from an economics perspective, he's outselling my books by <laughs> a couple orders of magnitude, if not if not several. So he's got to be doing something right, and let's see what we can learn from him. Um, Is it fair to say that most of the folks you brought together work in business history? I mean, you know, we all have multiple overlapping subfields that we work in, and they're they're different often, but. Is everyone basically you brought together? Is it fair to say they're business historians amongst other identities professionally? We take we take business history seriously. Some of us, it's primary. Others of us are historians of technology. Mm-hmm. Who, um, yeah. So I think we're uh, we're a mixed bunch, and I think uh, one of our strengths is that Piketty is not that concerned about the details of business and technology yeah. um, to him, he mostly treats them as a black box mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I, I think all of us have business history either as a primary or secondary identity or affiliation yeah um, and I, I it's probably that reflects on our networks uh, but also I, I guess some of the choices that we talk in terms of uh, trying to bring people on board. And, um, and this and it, and, Yeah, I was just going to say, and, and also even... It, <laughs> yeah, I, okay. yeah, so even even if we say, yeah, we're business, business historians, that's nowadays a really big tent. Um, yeah, yeah, it is. So, yeah, you know... And, 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 Go ahead. <laughs> okay, and this did start out as a um, as a roundtable at the Business History Conference yeah. in March of 2020, which was one of the, uh, the indeed the last conference I attended before beef, beef, before COVID, mm-hmm. and um, 
I should say our um, one of the highlights of that conference was um, a group shot of people in the in the in the book room. Um, we were all jammed together, holding books <laughs> and wearing our COVID protection of the using the latest scientific or medical advice because we all had our blue latex gloves on as we're holding <laughs> up the book. <laughs> um. Well, what I was thinking when I asked about I, this, I was not there. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't. I didn't make that either because it was right on the. It was right when COVID was kind of like shutting everything down. That conference happened. But when I was when I asked about this um, business history thing, part of what I, I mean, it, I think it's true as you point out in that introduction that Piketty, when you know he accounts for inequality, he doesn't really get into business and technology in any detailed way. It's also true that. You know, even though business history has changed a lot over the last couple of decades and has really opened up the kinds of topics you can handle under that umbrella or tent, um, inequality was not has not traditionally been a big topic at the business history conference. I don't think, right? Uh, and the effects of like you know the roles of entrepreneurs and capitalists and CEOs on inequality that's not been a traditional uh, topic. So it kind of goes in two directions. Is that fair? Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> some clarification, Lee, what, what goes in two directions? Uh, well, that, you know, that maybe, you know, to use Jonathan's, uh, you know, kick in the pants metaphor. I mean, there no, is, right, right. Uh, there is, you know, uh, it encourages business historians to maybe open up to this as an important topic that they should be exploring too. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you're right that it hasn't been a topic. Some historians have studied it, but business historians have not typically been very concerned about um, things like inequality, the, the impact of um, the social impact of business act activities. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you know, although business history has studied politics for, you know, for example, the relationship between the history of conservatism in America in the 20th century and its relationship to business via lobbying, for example, those kinds of things um, have been topics in business history, but business history itself has never really had a politics. Yeah. Um, I think or it, there's kind of been a subsumed politics that... Um, you know, business broadly with some hiccups and some setbacks, you know, has increased wealth mm -hmm. uh, and is largely a societal good. Um, yeah. So there's not been much critical, not much critical political distance from business in business history, I would say, even if even as we've kind of come to criticize business in relationship for example, to uh, to gender and race, mm. um, there there's not been a kind of fundamental political critical distance. I don't think to business, yeah, in the business history community. No. and it's um, and the number of political economists or people who study political economy and business history is fairly is fairly small. But I think it is it it is a a growing number too, as we yeah. realize that. Uh, even pre-Piketty, there's a grow, growing awareness mm -hmm. or sense of the the questions and, from an academic perspective, the opportunities mm -hmm. um, of, wow, 
we can really ask, we can use our, our skills get our questions into, into this area and make a contribution to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I take it he deserves a great deal of credit for bringing this, just raising the question of inequality, you know, bug, feature, local. Um, and that's, that's what we were looking at. That's what this, that's what this collection was, was, um, was all about. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about uh, Mark Levinson, the guy, you know, the historian who uh, wrote the book, The Box, about sh- the rise of shipping containers. He has a, a newer book called like After the Box or something like that, uh, which, you know, it, inequality and, you know, the issues of globalization are much more central to that that second book with thinking mm-hmm. about how these kinds of issues have affected uh, people in various nations. So it seems like there is a kind of shift in the field, or at least some people are kind of opening things up. And I think that's great. So Jonathan, mm-hmm. um, it's there's six, you know, there's your, your guy's introduction, and then there's six essays um, in, in the special issues. So is there a logic here that, you know, f- is there a reason they're in the order they're in? Um, starting with Ken Lee Partito and running through uh, Johan Matthew? Um, the six were chosen basically because they are really first-rate historians with good, you know, who ask good questions, do good research, and write well. Um, so, you know, that, um, the, uh, the groups are basically posed into sort of, we, we broke this into, into two approaches or two groups, um, one looking at structure and arguments, and the other looking at it from specific uh, history with the boots on on the on the ground, going um, going from foxhole to foxhole. Mm-hmm. Um, so, sort of, if if you want to be crude, or maybe not crude, um, um, you know, sort of macro and mac- and micro appro- approaches. Um, I think we all take Piketty very seriously, and to, or, but trying to look at him both from our terms and what he and what he's trying to uh, what he says he's he's trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And I should say one of the distinctions between what Piketty is doing and what a lot of historians do is that he is um, he's basically beating the to- Toskin. He's he's raising the flag and saying this is a serious ch- challenge. And uh, jumping forward a bit, he just came out with a new book, a brief history of e- of e- of equality, where he's saying our goal is to look at the the past to change the present for a better future. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he's got, you know, he he very much has an agenda here, but it's also a you know a very open a very open agenda. Um, he, and in, uh, he's saying, here's, here's our goal, but he's also using history as an example said, and if we don't do this, bad things are going to happen because he's talking about, we have a pattern of rising inequality and then it snaps back. But the way it usually snaps back is through really, uh, nasty dislocations like war and revolution yeah. and 
you know, he, he's, he's actually very much in a, in a gradualist approach. Hey, let's work at this now to avoid World War III. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So, and um, so I think that uh, a kind of, so the first three essays are kind of methodological or thinking about the work of history and, and yeah. what we do as historians. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, a common reaction amongst historians, at least stereotypically or in a, in a kind of character <coughs> way, is when they encounter these kind of big history things that are kind of like big theories of historical change. They bristle at this because it's just like too far away and too remote. But in um, the first essay about Ken Lee Partito, uh, titled A Feeling for History, I really saw him kind of um, trying to make a case for for Piketty's approach, right? And almost, I mean, not defend him, but say there's, you know, let alone, I mean, God forbid a, a an economist putting forward big picture, uh, you know, theories of historical change. That's the worst nightmare for some historians. But I, I saw Ken saying like, no, 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 like, this guy is not like the worst kind of economist we can imagine doing this work. So, Andy, say say a bit what you what you saw Ken saying about Piketty. Well, first of all, I'm I'm uh, exemplify that uh, tendency amongst historians right. to uh, you know I um, you know I don't read I haven't read Jared Diamond right um, I haven't read Harari right that guy's a um, real nightmare yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just read a big, uh, you know, I, I, um, uh, I do have the Dave Graeber, Dave uh-huh. Wengrove book on my bedside table, so I'm going to read that. But, but no, I don't, I, I do bristle. I'm the worst example of that kind of historian who's, um, maybe over concerned with, you know, defending the boundaries or saying, no, you don't understand, you've not done the work to gain access to this mystic mm. power that we historians have. Um, uh, but um, I, I think it's really hard to um, to read Piketty's book and make those arguments mm. that this is, you know, an interloper who doesn't understand mm. um, how history is done. Now, we can, we can pick arguments with aspects of his approach to doing history but yeah um i think and i think this is what ken is pointing out is is that actually he does a pretty good job yeah here yeah it's schematic he's proposing these different forms of inequality regime um uh, proprietarianism mm. uh social democratic neo-proprietarianism Trifunctional, you know, so it's it's schematic in that sense, and, and although he's proposing um, a kind of evolutionary pattern of movement through these, he does also allow lots and lots of space for uh, events, for turning points, mm. for contingency, for power, for agency. So this is not some really kind of basic preordained teleological yeah. history where things are just going to get continuously worse till we're you know ruled ruled by a tiny group of oligarchs even if that is where we end up um <laughs> yeah this is a history that's schematic but complexly so mm-hmm. if that makes sense yeah um and i think that's really uh what ken is pointing to now 
you know, we have some dis- questions about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the introduction raises some of those questions. Well, um, how, how do these switch points occur? If ideology is so powerful, and in particular, if elite ideology is so powerful, then surely that can prevent the kind of groundswell of new ideas that's going to lead to a switch point. Yeah. Um, which we see at the start of the 20th century with the shift away from highly proprietarian ideologies towards social democracy. So so there's nitpicking, if you like, yeah. and it's nit- nitpicking on a big scale. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> the, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but... Um, you know, within this highly schematized big history, yeah, um, there is a lot of nuance and a lot of allowance for things to slip um, and slide, which is what we historians like. Of course, yeah. we don't, you know, we don't things like things to be too neatly tied down. Mm-hmm. And it's, the other thing I would say, although it's big history. Um, and, and there is some ancient history, as I recall. Mm-hmm. It's a while since I've read the book. This is essentially a, a, this is essentially an early modern and modern history. Right. So we're not talking about Homo sapiens and millennia. Right, we're right. talking about some centuries. Mm-hmm. So, and I think Ken, and as all of us would. Uh, but what Ken is really doing in that very first essay is setting up those questions mm-hmm. of how do we treat Piketty as a historian, um, uh, and uh, you know, really teeing the whole thing up by saying yes, you know, we should be treating him mm-hmm. seriously as a historian, and then the rest of us go on, or, or the rest of the contributors go on to pick holes. Mm-hmm. The rest, yeah, I guess yeah. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and, that's what yeah, we're good and, at, after all. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, by the way, you know, you, you this is also part of a debate within the historical profession. Mm-hmm. You know, witness the, um, the history manifesto um, of, you know, what, 2014. And, um, yeah. you know, one of the nastier phrases you can hurl at a colleague who uh, is just, oh, you're a, you're a, you're a, you're a synthesizer. Um, mm. you're, or I you're wear a, that moniker a proudly. Well, right. yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. And as opposed to saying, oh, wow, you're somebody who is reaching a much larger audience and having them mm. you know, look at, you know, not just the quote, the lessons of history, unquote, but, oh, wow, this is, this is complex. This is hard. It, it's, um, yeah. you know, the secret sauce is that there's no secret sauce. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, um, you know, uh, to, to use a contemporary military analogy, uh, you do have all these really neat modern technologies that can kill large numbers of people at once, but you still have to have the phrase boots on the ground or be able to hold the hill. Mm-hmm. And for be good historians you want to think of the you want to look at the big picture if only to attract a larger audience mm. which is what Piketty's done very um but also to look at let's look at the, let's look at the very local level mm-hmm. and 
I think that's what all of our, our contributors are doing, and Ken sets the stage particularly well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, if I can add one thing, I, I think early on in the introduction, we say that um, historians tend to make very bad politicians because our default answer is always, well, it's complicated. Yeah. Um, well, yes, it is, but maybe sometimes we cling to that as a comfort blanket. Yeah, for sure and, we do, I think. Uh, yeah. And yeah, and Pickett is trying to, trying to pull, it, pull it away from us a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Heidi Torek has uh, this uh, article, Novels and Newspapers in Piketty's Capital and Ideology. And um, I have to say, I really like, uh, in, in, his, in his earlier book, Capital in the 21st Century, I really like the way he used, like, Jane Austen, for instance. I often hold this up as, mm-hmm. like, how we can bring together literature and, and economic analysis in, like, fruitful ways, in ways that kind of show us pictures of the world more richly than we can just do with data. Um, but uh, this kind of goes to, Andy, your mention of kind of elites and elite discord or like elite thinking. Part of what Heidi's showing there in her piece is that, um, you know, Piketty does tend to um, draw on elite literatures with Austin being, a you know, a clear example, I would think. Um, and doesn't kind of focus on, you know, novels, the working class and, and newspapers read by working people. So, you know, what, what does she want to say, like, we will see uh, if, if, we, if we open up the kinds of sources we use um, in the kind of media we look to? Jonathan, you want to take a first crack at that one? Yeah, uh, she's basically uh, saying, you know, what data are you using? That, yeah. um, that Piketty is writing from the perspective of the ruled. Uh, I mean, sorry. From the Piketty is essentially writing from the perspective of the of the rulers, not the ruled. Mm-hmm. Um, which, by the way, is part of a larger issue in in history too. If you look, at, go back to the '60s and '70s. Right. Oh wow, we've got, uh, hey, let's look at the voices that that haven't been 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 heard. And yeah. uh, in Texas. Um, uh, we're having a ferocious debate, as in many states, not just critical race theory, uh, but the Battle of the Alamo. Um, there's a, uh, you know, and what that means, know, how did, and how to interpret what it, that, what that means, and who was there, yeah. and um, and it's taking on contemporary political issues. So, yeah. if anything, um, Piketty is saying to historians, hey, you know, your history is being politicized anyway. You might as well have a. You might as well try to make it at least accurate, mm. or you know, have have your pers- your perspective. But Heidi's view is that you know, by looking at the Jane Austens, by not looking at, uh, uh, you know, looking at some of Robert Robert Darton's readings of the Paris Underworld mm-hmm. or the or the censored books, what are we what are we missing out on? Mm-hmm. It would be like, um, let's do a history of. Washington D.C. from the view of the White House of mm-hmm. the of the of the of the White House Society, as mm-hmm. opposed to oh yeah, there's this other city there too. Well, and it seems and Andy. To, what are we missing? To go back to your Sorry. one of your points, and I think that's great, Jonathan. I think to go back to one of your earlier points, if we are interested in kind of theorizing these ground swells or turning points where like the other classes do come up and push back. <laughs> And it seems like these other kinds of sources might be helpful for thinking through that side of the history, right? 
Yeah, definitely. And it's not only Heidi uh, making that point with respect to Piketty's use of literary sources, which, yeah, I I think is narrow. Uh, yeah. He, he, re, he relies on a very narrow band yeah. of uh, authors from a small number of countries. Um, and I think there's very legitimate criticism there. But uh, 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 Tiba Patia is essentially making the same point when he says we need to look at the uh, the foot soldiers who propped up proprietarian uh, ideologies, not just the elites. And then Johan yeah. Matthew talking about uh, the very real um, impact of inequalities on, on the bodies of the oppressed, not just the enslaved, mm -hmm. the enslaved certainly, but other other groups in society as well. So, I mean, mm -hmm. Hyde is not alone in making this point. Um, but it's, and, and, and we do, you know, those voices are missing. The, uh, yeah. This book can't do everything. And one, yeah. one thing it doesn't do is give much space at all to voices from below for, for, um, for history from below. But of course, that's a really difficult balancing act. Exactly, um, yeah. I, 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 I guess I'm kind of, I resist the title a bit because uh, or the, or the uh, the label but I mean I guess I do micro history mm -hmm. mostly um, I, I write about increasingly tiny things yes um, uh, <laughs> but doing that it's you know so, so you know Piketty would probably say well where's the structure right um, right where where's the structure in this that you're writing how does this how does this relate um uh, to 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 systems um right. how does this relate to institutions uh where's the agency where's the power in these uh, right. very small stories that you like to tell so <laughs> whilst pointing this out as a um as a, as a definite weakness of mm -hmm. the book, um, I, I think it's also fair to acknowledge you know, just how difficult that totally. is uh, mm -hmm. to actually do to 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 bring to bring those into a kind of fruitful dialogue, yeah. um, and also, you know, that perennial debate not just in history but in social sciences uh, around structure and agency. Yeah. Well, and also like whether to focus on elites or the the working classes or you know however we want to conceive of those things, I think that that's mm -hmm. a pendulum that swung back and forth. You know, there was this kind of social mm -hmm. history moment in the '60s and '70s and maybe even earlier, uh, where it was you know focusing on the common people was the the goal. And then I think there was a you know some kind of reaction to that with you know um, Sven Beckert and others starting to study elites again. And maybe, you know, in some, you know, for my taste, maybe we've gone too much in the elite history, intellectual history direction in my own fields, mm -hmm. like tech, history of technology. And, you know, I've been arguing for a kind of return for to a kind of social history of technology and like what the lived reality is with with technological mm -hmm. change. So, I, again, like there's a there's a lot. One thing I like about your special issue is it does raise all these deep methodological and theoretical questions about how we get balance right and who we're looking to, it's it's really juicy in that way for historians to chew on. Jonathan, you have a thought? Yeah, and if I... No, Andy, go yeah. ahead. I, go I was it, just going to, you know, but, but sorry, I butt in really briefly. Um, for a book that's deeply concerned with historical change and development, 
this book doesn't have a very clear theory of change. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there's an irony, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Jonathan. Yeah, it's, it's it, all the, um, oh gosh, and one of the, the articles looking at the ancient re re regime, uh, Mary, Mary O'Sullivan says, yeah. you know, she does a very nice thing. Okay. Um, you talk about, uh, or pick, 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 you know, the threefold division of uh, society. Well, what about these commoners who are, you know, in the city, ambitious, and moving up in, in the, you know, where, do, mm. where do they fit in? Yeah. Um, you know, Piketty, you know, and the, you know, the, the advantage of, of, of theory from above is um, sort, of, sort of like physics. You know, let's assume there's no friction, and we can model every, and the modeling works great. Um, what uh, micro historians do, if you want to call it that, they're biologists. You know, we get down in the weeds. Why is you know why are the grapes in this side of the field produce so much better wine than the grapes from that side of the field? Mm. Um, and one of the challenges is how do we how do we mix those. How do we mix those together? Mm. And if nothing else, uh, Piketty may be the economist that spawns a thousand historical articles. Yeah. Um, I like that O'Sullivan article a lot. Um, it's called Constructing a Big History of Inequality because on the one hand, it does do the kind of historian's thing of saying like, look, when we go this far out and look this big, we, we need to attend to what's lost in that kind of approach. But where she goes with that, I mean, that, you know, that could be the punchline and end of the story. But where she goes with that is that she sees then, you know, opportunity for I think she calls it like muscular engagement or something like that yeah. of like going in, you know, with Piketty in mind, with the questions he raises, then going in with the, you know, more microscopic approaches of historians and really engaging and seeing what comes out of it. So it's a really kind of I think it offers uh, a nice picture for a productive road forward other than just saying like you're being too much of an economist or something, which is a risk. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think that, uh, yeah, Mary's done a marvelous, you know, what can we take, you know, here are, here are our issues with Piketty, here's where he could, but here's where we can, we can go from, from, from here. And I think all of the issues were trying to be as constructive as possible and thinking of this larger issue of, um, how can we as historians respond to larger societal issues mm -hmm. of the yeah. 21st century? That's right. Um, uh, and we're going to find out. <laughs> yeah. And J Jonathan just said something a moment ago about spawning a thousand historical articles. Um, you know, and I think that's right. Pickett has given us a framework if, if we choose to follow it within which we could work. So now I, I'm sat here in Denmark, which is everyone's favorite uh, exemplar poster boy for social democracy. Um, <laughs> you know, all of the time, I see this, you know, yeah. particularly in the American. Oh, my God, man. We bring you guys up all the time. You know, it's just like <laughs> Scandinavian <Yeah>. general. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, but you know, so we're the, the we're this. I, I say we. I'm obviously not Danish, um, uh, but yeah, ah, we're Norwegian accent. <laughs> no, but you know, we're we're poster boys, you know, for the right who want to say, uh, uh, "Good God, you don't want to live in Denmark." Yeah, uh, 
the middle classes can't afford cars. I don't know if you saw that recently. The pre the previous ambassador to American ambassador mm. to to Denmark said that the middle classes here couldn't afford to drive, you know. And then and then the progressive left in the U.S. says, "Look at this wonderful society." Mm. Uh, but the reality is, you know, in the, in the mid nineteenth century, the Scandinavian countries were, and my colleagues are probably going to kill me now. You know, were were deeply unequal. Mm. Mm. Uh, absolutist monarchies, um, pre-industrial. Um, there is not some genius loci at work in Scandinavian that makes everyone happy collectivists, right? This this was a program of work that was under, uh, undertaken by organisations in civil society, uh, by trade unions in particular, by political parties, by groups within business, for example, in the dairy industry that pioneered cooperative organization. And I have lots of colleagues, political scientists and, and historians at CBS and many elsewhere who work on these issues. Right. So so the, the switch point in Scandinavia from being high, highly proprietarian to social democracy, you know, was not some naturally occurring event that yeah. we can't explain it's not some mystery it was a program of work that we can study historically mm -hmm. and and those more focused historical studies can if we choose to be slotted into this bigger framework mm -hmm. uh that piketty provides us that makes a lot of sense to me yeah. sorry i went on a rant now. no man that was great but <laughs> yeah uh, and one thing that historians look at is change over time. Mm. And um, Scandinavia is one of the economic success stories uh, in terms of, you know, again, go back a century. And th 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 this is um, in his uh, late latest book, the one we are, you know, Pickett says, guy, if you look, if you take the big view, if you step back, you know, and look at things a century or two or a couple generations, overall, you know, standards of living uh, are up. Mm -hmm. In some forms of inequality are decreasing, particularly uh, racial and gender inequality. Um, but economic equality, which is had gone down, is 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 um, going up. Mm -hmm. So, um, and he's. And it's what, uh, you know, certainly from contemporary political situation, it's that increase in inequal in economic inequality, uh, and efforts to increase or decrease political or gender and racial inequality that are triggering a lot of frictions mm -hmm. in contemporary societies. Mm -hmm. um, but these are these as as Heidi shows. Um, as Mario Sullivan, as Kencho, these are not new issues. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of our, uh, you know, how 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 can we link the micro with the macro, and have it and have the right lessons of history being drawn, or at least the right questions to ask. Yeah. You know, including who's not, you know, who's not included in this conversation, or or who or who who's not being being cited. So the um, second the the second half of the the special issue is more focused on specific 
historical interpretations and uh, in often specific moments, though some of them could cover pretty broad periods of time as well. Um, but it opens with Richard John's uh, uh, article, Political Contest Station and the Second Great Divergence. And the Second Great Divergence is this moment in the late 19th century in the U.S. and other places where, you know, there's a lot of economic growth. And uh, Richard is a, is a friend and a mentor. He's been a, he's been a guest on uh, the podcast before, but I thought it was like the most Richard John uh, type of essay in a good way because it was basically like, you know, Piketty hasn't done his homework, right? He hasn't read up on this period. Uh, and so he's relying on old scripts that, you know, are kind of outdated is a word he uses. Um, and... So, yeah, I mean, just like talk about, I mean, so th this is like, I think that when, the way I was reading, I mean, it was wonderfully, you know, Richard is using examples for the telegraph and telephone industry, which are things he knows very well because he wrote Network Nation, this big book about that stuff. But I also, you know, kind of saw it in that kind of Mario Sullivan way of like, if we're going to do these giant books, and I, I bump into this in the, all the time with my own work, there's just a limit to like what we can read and how well we can know any period. You know, and so we kind of fall back on scripts that are around, you know, and maybe too easy scripts. But I don't know. I mean, Andy, how, how did you re read Richard's uh, contribution to the overall uh, special issue? Yeah, so we, we, earlier we were talking about the, the lack of political, political economy yeah. generally in business history or, or, or the relative neglect of political economy. And uh, Richard's directing us to look at, to look take that seriously uh, and obviously he's uh, he focuses on monopoly and anti-monopoly which you know you know he's writing a big book on, right that's right yep uh, on now so that fits naturally in into um in into his current pattern of work and uh, yeah he's he's um he does take piketty to task yeah to an extent um, and as you say, that's kind of quite a Richard John thing to do. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Which, Richard, if you, you're going to listen to this, we, we mean in an extremely We mean it in the most loving way, way Richard. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine a more loving way to put it. But it is, you know, it's a historiographical argument saying, you know, he hasn't done his homework. And, you know, that's a, that's a yeah. point. Yeah, Jonathan. And he's right. Yeah, he's right. But <laughs> but it's, it's also, I should say, that challenge of how do you catch... How do you stay abreast in so many fields? Yeah, exactly. Um, um, and one of the ways of doing that is you form teams. Yeah. And um, I think, and we we mentioned this in a, in a in a footnote. One of Piketty's contributions is he's putting a lot of his data online. Yeah. He's got these huge data sets, and by the way, he even had you know if you go to the website, um, you know, he even said, hey. Here's a PowerPoint of my major points with graphics. Uh, here's the short, you know, here's the short PD, uh, here's the short PowerPoint. Here's the really, really long one. Mm -hmm. um, so he's, you know, he's, and he's doing something that historians do poorly, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that he's getting teams, he's getting, he's getting the money to create the teams. He's storing the data. He's making it available. You know, this is, yeah, uh, this is big ac 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 academia, and I think one of our challenges, which should have written more about, it, is how do we 
respond to this in an institutional or organ mm -hmm. organ organizational way. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, I may not have done my, my homework, but, um, you know, I can rely on, on, on Andy or you, Lee yeah. to say, Hey, we've done this. This is what you, this is, this is what you have to say. You know, uh, one of the jokes and is, you know, trying to organize historians is like, is like hurt, hurting cats. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Piketty is able to accomplish so much in part because he's working and he gives credit to this large team of people that he, yeah. that he's doing with and the resources to, you know, to do that. Mm. And I, I think that's, that's one of the unstated challenges or issues that we should be, we should be th yeah. think, thinking about it. You know, it's, you know, you know, he may have spawned a thousand, he may spawn a thousand historical articles, but is there a way we can organize those into a fleet? Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 And, you know, Richard's in that essay is not saying, oh, well, Thomas Piketty doesn't perfectly understand the political economy of anti-monopoly in late 19th century America, therefore the whole book's wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's very, that's very, very far from what he's doing. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, um, it's incumbent on us to respond to those places where we think we can add to and advance the debate, but to do so, so, you know, positively and constructively. And and by looking at contestation there between, really amongst elite groups, between big business right. and big government, um, Richard's beginning to show us ways we can address um, what we've identified uh, both in the special issue and in this conversation today as one of the weaknesses, which is that it's relatively poor explanation for his, for historical change mm -hmm. uh in Piketty's book so he's, yeah. he is he is picking apart one of those uh switch moments that Piketty talks about um to look about look at how change might have come about yeah. in in that uh particular situation and interestingly for the, for the discussion we had earlier about elites and non-elites uh, as i say this this was a contestation that was taking place yeah. Uh, between between uh, two um, two different uh, aspects or dimensions, essentially the same elite. Mm -hmm. And in Richard's case, he's looking at change that did happen. <coughs> in Mary O'Sullivan's case, it's change that really didn't happen mm. or tried to happen but didn't. Uh -huh. um, and you know. That you know, one of the, one of, one of the big you know, there. You know, one of the challenges of history is that we tend to look at, especially history of technology, business history. We tend to look at what succeeded. Mm. You know, we look at the Exxons and the um, uh, so far the Teslas of the of the of the world. You know, we don't look. <laughs> um, but you know, we don't look at the Rivians. We don't look. You know, there's a lot of. There's a lot of failure, failed efforts to change, yeah. and you know, um, you know, and it's easy to say, "Oh, they were they were premature," um, but it's more of well, they didn't think so at the time. Yeah, you know, um, so we uh, you know, looking a lot more at what didn't occur, the changes, you know, efforts to change. Uh, I think would also 
thicken our appreciation or uh, deepen our uh, appreciation of what did. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that that's another call, uh, a fruitful area of of investigation and, and cooperation. Yeah. Um, we met, we, uh, Andy mentioned earlier, Atiba at Pertilla, is that how you pronounce the person's name? Um, uh, so I, there's this essay, I think so, yeah. uh, there's a article on financial professionals and the formation of proprietary ideology, uh, which Andy mentioned earlier, kind of looks, I mean, it was, it warmed my heart because I always write about lower level bureaucrats and finding myself writing about those folks instead of the super elites. So it's kind of pushing us to look at, you know, the, uh, the lower level financial folks actually making the system work. Uh, which, you know, I'm on board with, uh, you know, kind of automatically because of my setup. But, you know, what does uh, Pertilla think that we gain by uh, looking to these other kinds of folks? Andy, you want to give a shot at that one? Yeah, so I think one thing we pick up in the introduction to this special issue is, uh, and this relates to the questions we've already been talking about, about... Mm. Um, uh, about change is this idea of an enactment um so it, it, it's it's okay uh talking about ideology but obviously if we're also talking yeah. about the material world we can't just stay yeah. floating around in pure ideation so ideology needs to be enacted uh yeah. and i think atiba does a fantastic job there of showing the mechanics the concrete uh mechanics in in that essay particularly in terms of uh you know human capital if we want to call it that mm, mm. um of of uh how the elites uh simply can't operate through kind of pure force of will but 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 the the enactment of ideology requires the the recruit recruitment of these uh kind of mid-level um bureaucrats and i i think that essay is a is a really great example of the kind of dialogue that historians can productively strike mm -hmm. up with with piketty yeah uh, and and again as with richard's kind of large-scale picture looking at contestation again helps us to begin to unpick some of those questions that perhaps piketty unsurprisingly leaves right uh, incompletely answered you know around change for example right well and and that to you know to add the richness of the picture that we do have elite contestation between elites and we also have people lower down the ladder who are very bought into the system and are enacting it so mm -hmm. it just riches up yeah. things right um i, re I mm -hmm. really liked uh i found johan matthews uh essay embodied capital in the history of inequality on on bodies and the the effects of inequality on bodies to be i, I just it kind of surprised me at first because it was kind of felt different than the other ones but i mean it's, it's a great essay and i really liked it uh jonathan what what did you what do you feel like you gained from like matthew saying that we need to bring the body back into it and the and looking at how you know inequality plays out in bodies The American healthcare system. <laughs> yeah. Um, I rest my case. Um, no, no, but he's, you know, um, there are people. You know, we are we are writing about history. We're writing about people. We're writing about their bodies, and 
this is something that we don't mm. take for granted or, we're, or we don't we don't we don't explore but we're seeing um, and if I was writing contemporary polemic I say now look at the uneven impact of COVID right um, where we're seeing real literally life-altering uh, life-changing results based on you know, based on your access to health, based on um, you know environmental environmental justice, um, you know that inequality has you know. Tell me your zip code, and I'll tell you your average life. Mm -hmm. um, you're seeing that and at the same time. Um, you know, let's look at these national level. If you really want to live a long time, live in Japan. Um, now, why is that? So you, you've, yeah. you, you, you've got multiple facts, but he's, um, uh, he's bringing, you know, let's, you know, we, we talk about inequality, but let's look at some of the actual impacts or some of the possible of, of effects of this. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a, it's a very effective re, re, re reminder that, uh, you know, when we write history, we're writing about people, and there's a lot that we take that we don't write about that we take that we take for granted, mm -hmm. and that um, it's it's going beyond the graphics. It's going beyond the charts. It's getting to, oh gosh, um, you know, uh, I'm in a wheelchair and I can't move out of my department. I can't move from my apartment because there's no working elevator, or you know, one of the one of the um, more recent example, one of the greatest efforts at physical mobility in the last couple of decades in the U.S. was the Americans with Disability Acts. Um, now let's, you know, that's a political act to let's, let's move, let's reduce health inequalities, which, by the way, beneficial aspects for everybody else, as anybody who's used a rollerboard in the city street can tell you. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm ver verging away, but it's, it's, it's a wonderful way of getting, not just to talking about inequalities bad, but this is a way of looking at it and understanding it that we normally don't think of and, mm -hmm. and that we should. It gets us out of ideation, too, and makes it very concrete, right? I mean, it's like, what is the lived reality of this thing? It reminds me of some sociologists I like. I think it's in Bordeaux, but especially this guy, John Levy Martin at the University of Chicago, I like, where, you know, class positions kind of become embodied. And if we think about, you know, if we think about obesity and cancer and so many other things, diabetes and so many other outcomes, they're so especially in the U.S., obviously. They're so tightly coupled to class and race and these other, these other issues. Andy, do you feel like there's anything in the Matthew essay that stood out to you that we haven't really chatted about yet? Um, I, I like the passion in that essay. Mm -hmm. uh, it's angry at times, I think. Uh, and, and again, I mean that in a really positive way. Um, you know, one, one, something we raise in the introduction is that is that Piketty never really directly addresses why inequality is bad. Yeah, you know, and and none of us who contributed to the special issue disagree. Um, right, but there is a real question. Mm -hmm. You know, why why is this a bad thing? Right. Um, 
maybe it's a necessary price for for, for for you know for growth and and and, and uh, wealth generation. Um, so I think Johan's essay is you've both just been discussing is a reminder that that uh, inequality has real consequences yeah. uh, that are felt in 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 a visceral painful sense yeah. um and and johan really takes us back to the material in the most basic sense of the human body and as i say there's a kind of passion and almost an anger there uh, not an anger at picardy and um uh an anger about the inequity um yeah. that is salutary really uh, and and important um, that's a really good way to put it i mean is, Go ahead, Eddie. No, 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 I've done. Oh, um, I mean, I think that uh, that's a really good way to put it. Because, I mean, sometimes, you know, when I read his earlier book, which I spent a lot more time with than the second one, um, Capital in the 21st Century, it almost seems like inequality is bad because it leads to bad outcomes like violent revolutions and problem, like, you know, those kinds of structures. Uh, you know, problems, which we mentioned earlier, by the way, as like one picture that he has that this leads to war and, and, and civil war and such. But, you know, like this is like, no, I mean, Matthew's essay makes it clear that it's like, no, there's real suffering happening as a result of these systems, you know, and in the most in the most tangible ways possible there. You can't get more uh, mm -hmm. tangible than the the pain and the, you know, the disease and the, the addictions and all these other things that come from from these kinds of inequalities. So mm -hmm. I, I really like that yeah. way of putting it, Andy. It's just a, it's a stark reminder. Yeah. 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 Um, and we need it sometimes, even those of us who uh, um, you know, are concerned about these issues or make it part of our politics. Um, we we need that reminder, I think, sometimes. I thought one, you know, on the kind of road to wrapping up our conversation today, I was thinking, you know, like, what are your kind of hopes coming out of this volume? And, um, you know, what are you either seeing? We can just focus on business history for now, if, if it makes it easier to kind of have a space for history of technology and business history. What are you seeing that gives you hope, uh, you know, already maybe? Or, you know, where, what do you think, what are you hoping to see more of having gone through this experience with a special issue? Jonathan, you want to give it for a shot? Um, boy, uh, what would I like to see in the future improvements? Editors who can respond faster to requests from um, uh, people submitting papers. No, that's... Um, <laughs> we can talk about the professional side of our, uh, of our work life, too. Yeah, it's, <laughs> there are issues. I guess I was meaning more in terms of topics no. and research areas. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, no. I think a greater, I think a greater awareness of the issue of inequality, yeah. but, and I think these papers have given several useful approaches that historians can use um, to to do. But also, uh, what I'd like to see is us reaching out to the economists, mm. to other professions, and saying. Um, how can we work together? How can yeah. we, you know, maybe in workshops, maybe in publications. Totally. Um, right, which means we've, you know, we have to go out and 
not necessarily beat the bush, but say, you know, together we can add, um, you know, a more diverse group of academics looking at this may be able to create more, you know. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I feel the same way about my kind of stuff on recent technological and economic change. And, you know, it's really economists who first drawn our attention to like, you know, what we can call like the lack of innovation and lack of productivity change as a result of that. Um, and, you know, historians of technology have not had much to say about that, frankly, or people in STS, a broader interdisciplinary field. No. So it's like, you know, I think there is a kind of call for inter a certain kind of interdisciplinarity and, you know, thinking with economists and others that we sometimes shun, frankly, you know, I mean, the word economist oh. comes up in some business or history circles and it's like, ew, gross, you know, those guys. <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's all, also, and this is something we don't get into in the book, is just the methodologies that we use yes. are so different. Yeah. Our approaches are, 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 are so different. I, um, I, I've attended a couple of uh, innovation conferences in, in, in the last month or two. And you have some of these economists coming uh, and information scientists, you know, okay, well, we've looked at this data set of 10,000 papers and we've done it and we're th thinking, ooh, this is not a historian speaking. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I, I think, you know, uh, you know, one of our challenges is we need to go forth and talk to these, um, talk with these different groups and see, try to understand what we don't understand about each, 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 each other. Um, mm -hmm. But again, that means moving away from our traditional approaches and the traditional reward systems of, of the monograph, yeah. the article, how do we do, a, how do we do a collaborative work? Yeah. Um, you know, Perennial because, issue. You know the effort that we put here. Yeah, standard issue. Uh, yeah. There to to quote, possibly to quote, paraphrase Piketty. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun, just various forms. But we're getting better. But we're getting better sunlight as we rise. <laughs> uh, and Andy, how about you? I mean, things that you're seeing that are already making you hopeful, or things you hope to see in kind of business history in the next decade or so. So I think thinking a little bit more locally, mm -hmm. I, I agree with everything Jonathan just said, but thinking a little more locally within history, um, you know, there's sometimes been, I think, an unnecessary um, separation between business history and the new history of capitalism. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, Piketty's intervention could enliven that, uh, juncture between those two uh, subfields. I mean, obviously there is there's plenty of exchange and there's quite a lot of overlap of personnel, but but um, there are still clearly felt to be enough uh, distinguishing them to 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 identify two distinct fields. When yeah. I think often we we could be working in far more complementary ways. Um, so that might be that might be one hope. Yeah. As Jonathan said, um, I think uh, and a historical attention to the to the roots of inequality uh, would be great. What one thing Piketty really doesn't do is is 
and we just talked about bodies and the materiality of bodies, you know, he, he almost completely black boxes what we, for shorthand, we might call the real economy. Yeah. Um, there's, there, there are no, <laughs> there are virtually no firms yeah, yeah. in this right. book. Mm -hmm. uh, there are virtually no industrialists. There are, and we we don't have an essay that discusses this. We've discussed it a lot in emails between between. We had incredibly rich email conversations over many months putting this together, and this is where we discuss this topic. You know, there are no firms. Yeah. There are no industries. There are no industrialists. Mm -hmm. There are no financiers. There are no entrepreneurs. Right. Um, there are no innovators. There's no technology. There's no plant. There's no factories. Yeah. Um, I, I'm exaggerating a bit, but not, not much. much. No. Uh, yeah. uh, so, um, I, I think, um, and you've talked about kind of a lack of attention to some of these issues in in the history of technology and in STS. You know, the role of firms and the role of technology, the role of entrepreneurship and innovation in in not simply. Uh, uh, supporting or perpetuating inequality, but actually in generating it in the first place. Mm. Um, so I think there was a lot of very fruitful potential there. Yep. And, and of course, business history is already paying uh, a great deal of very welcome attention to, to um, racial inequality, to uh, gender inequality uh, in terms of... of you know, discriminatory uh, treatment, yeah. uh, discriminatory uh, access to opportunities, um, a whole what range of issues of of more kind of specific inequalities and inequities. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just to take that framework that Pickett has provided us and start filling in. Yeah. The blanks and 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 to material, you know, to start grounding it in the material as well. Yeah. Well, guys, this has been a lot of fun, just like I knew it was. It would be. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today, and thanks for putting together this special issue. Oh, thank you so much for inv inviting us, and yeah, uh, thank you for for taking the initiative to uh, start your broad your podcast, keep it going and to bring us together across across the continents <laughs> yeah thanks guys yeah thank you lee and thanks and thanks jonathan i hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast peoples and things like most things in this world depends on the work of many people I want to thank my brother, Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy, Juliana Castro, for designing the logos for the podcast. Check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and is supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are hosted in the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities teaching, learning, and creation. Joe Fort is the media production manager with Virginia Tech Publishing and serves as producer and sound engineer for Peoples and Things. Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu.
I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.